DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lang, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is one of the most influential and controversial novels of the 19th century, but has also become one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted. It has been vivisected critically by latter-day Victor Frankensteins, who have transformed the meanings emergent from the novel into monsters of postmodern misconception. Rather than understanding Frankenstein and his monster through the lens of tradition, the moderns have seized upon the book and carried off its bits to construct their own particular boogeyman. Seldom has a work of fiction suffered so scandalously from the slings and arrows of outrageous criticism. We now begin our discussion on Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. Welcome, Joseph. It's good to be here. Frankenstein and its author, Mary Shelley, Many people do not know this very young girl who did an extraordinary work, and they really don't know the work if they watch the movie. No, as is often the case, of course, that if if your only engagement with Western literature is through Hollywood, then you're not really engaging uh, it at all, because with a very few noble and honorable exceptions, Hollywood adaptations of works of literature are horrible. The treatment of Frankenstein over the years, they may be entertaining as films, but they're not adaptations of the work of literature, um, which is much more complex and confused and confusing than the rather simple two-dimensional film versions. But yes, yeah, she was amazingly young, astonishingly young, and and it was uh, an astonishing achievement. And it says a lot for perhaps the, the world she was living in at the time she wrote it. And also, you know, somewhat odd because she never really managed to achieve those same heights thereafter. Just its formation is quite the tale. She, if I'm not mistaken, was at a gathering where there was a challenge to write. And she sat down and did just that. Absolutely. And outdid her older and perhaps more illustrious literarily companions. First, we need to understand she was a very, should we say, passionate and reckless and wild soul. Her parents were atheists. Her parents, her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was a, a radical feminist who died when Mary was a, a baby, so she didn't know her, her mother. Her father was uh, not only a radical atheist, a militant atheist, but also was opposed to the institution of marriage. And one consequence of that sort of upbringing is that Mary Shelley gets involved as a teenager with an adulterous relationship with Percy Shelley and induces Percy Shelley to abandon his wife and child his wife commits suicide so we're having lives being destroyed by this say myopic self-indulgence with all this is going on and indeed while 
Mary is writing Frankenstein, she learns of Harriet Shelley's suicide. She must have felt partially responsible because, you know, that she's the person mm-hmm. that her, her husband's run away with. So all of that's going on. And, you know, if we talk about nightmares finding expression in literature, well, we can see that there are many reasons why Mary Shelley might be having nightmares uh, at this time. And it, it proves to be very fruitful from the point of view of this very dark work of literature and many lessons emerge from it and from the experiences. Many lessons indeed. Just to go back again, the influence of her mother, Mary Wilsoncraft, one of the first and most vocal of which could really turn feminist. It would be born from that 19th century that would end up affecting the 20th century. Even if she were not physically present to Mary Shelley, she was there, you would have to think, in her writings and in what her father would communicate to her. And even more so, because, you know, what can happen, of course, if you don't know your parent, then you begin to idolize them. This is the mother that I never had, I never got to know, that died when I was a baby. That if you're idolizing someone, you're also idolizing everything they believed in. Ironically enough, if Mary Wollstonecraft had lived long enough for Mary to get to know her when they're growing up, then Mary may have been far more questioning about these things. But as we see, even in the midst of Frankenstein, there's a desire, so it would seem, for conventional marriage, which would seem to defy both uh, her mother's and her father's philosophy. And one must sense, perhaps, it's a consequence of the fact that of how insecure Mary felt, life with this sort of wandering fornicator, Shelley, and indeed in the company of of the likes of Lord Byron. In a very real way, what Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, his self-indulgence, his desire, the consequences are played out by the creature. You owe it to yourself to read the book to really connect to the heart of this individual. And it's applicable on all sorts of levels. On one level, Victor Frankenstein is the mad scientist. And what we see is the destructive consequences of technology that's departed from the path of ethics. On the other hand, we also see the destruction of the monster. The monster itself as being someone who's deprived of the human love and human affection that quite clearly as a creature it is. I mean, we're not talking about a mindless brute. We're talking about a human being here. So what's been created as a monster it's a monster in the sense of the Latin, meaning to warn, as in monstrance, or to show, as in and monstrance for the best sacraments. We're talking about a human being. And so this then ties in and overlaps with things such as genetics, uh, genetic manipulation, eugenics, euthanasia, abortion. Once you have a creature, an unwanted creature, that now is going to threaten to disrupt your life, what responsibility do you owe to that? One of the great things about Frankenstein it's multifaceted, multidimensional, and it's almost its almost like a chameleon. It changes color. And the reason for that is, I mean, we talked about uh, Wuthering Heights and Emily Bronte, where she has a profoundly Christian philosophy underpinning everything she writes. Mary Shelley's a confused little girl, mm-hmm. you know, has all of these different inputs coming in and is trying to make sense of them. So the work is confused and confusing, but she's trying to work things out. And that's the attraction of it in many ways, is this poor little girl with these various different intellectual currents that are working on life and emotional currents and how she's trying to make sense of those. It is fascinating when you put it in that context because it's though the natural law jumps in here in her reasoning that there's something very, very basic about every 
ethical situation. And even a teenage confused girl can figure this out as she plays it out in her own process. Yeah, the character of Elizabeth in the novel quite clearly is acting as a very conservative voice and would seem to be the voice that's being most sympathetically sketched by Mary and therefore we even dare say the one that perhaps she's sympathizing with most. And Elizabeth is basically saying to Victor Frankenstein that, you know, that your obsession with science is leaving you blind to the beauties of nature, blind to the beauties of marriage, blind to the beauties of children, blind to the beauties of life, you know, this sort of necrophilia that's going on here. And connect that with perhaps Mary's relationship with Percy Shelley. Percy Shelley was the one that talked about the shadow of futurity that was, you know, very, very obsessed with new technology and science, who was an atheist, who was taking up the ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, another sort of major influence in the novel. Uh, and against all this, it was Mary Shelley, this little girl who's been swept away by passion with the more mature Shelley, who you must really hold to blame here as the older, more mature man who manipulates this girl, this teenager, to get his way with her. And here she is now, mixed up, confused, being an accessory to the suicide of Shelley's wife, trying to make sense of all these things. It's interesting, for instance, that the two romantic figures she associates with most positively in the novel are Wordsworth and Coleridge, who mm-hmm. are the romantics that convert to Christianity and not the Byronic and Shelley. I mean, the fact that Byronic is surely Victor Frankenstein, and he, no one can say he's being drawn positively. You may feel sorry for him in some ways, but uh, he's, he's clearly responsible for his own predicament. It's her ability to be able to say what the consequence of the lack of love, of the true self-giving sacrificial, it is a very Christian type of love. Her ability to be able to write this out, especially at her age, and so incredibly that would affect a society. This book really shook England, didn't it? It did, because I say there's an awful lot of powerful stuff going on there. It's as if this girl, you know, has somehow managed to channel the passionate maelstrom in which she finds herself and to spin a yarn from it that touches all of us. And it still continues to do so because a lot of the ideas in there are conflicts that we deal with. Do we follow our passions? Do we follow our obsessions? Or do we somehow try to step back from those and take a more prudent and temperate path through life, which is clearly the role that the heroine plays in it. And of course, because the male characters fail to to listen to that essentially conservative voice, the feminine voice there, it leads to the destruction of just about everybody, including, of course, the poor, hapless Elizabeth herself. The heroine Mm -hmm. herself is killed at the hands of the monster. Yeah, the monster probably one of the saddest endings to a novel. It's so compelling, but it doesn't just end. He's left. We don't know what happens to right. him. Right. Again, we, we talked about elements of ambivalence as to where do Heathcliff and Cathy end at the end of Wuthering Heights. But, you know, where does the monster end at the end of Frankenstein? Because he wanders off over the horizon into the bleak Arctic north. And we say never to be seen again. But if you, put, if you said never to be seen again, you'd have to put a question mark after it. Because, you know, are the ramifications of the monster's creation like Pandora's box? Have they been unleashed upon society and can never be put back in again? And of course, the moral applicability to that, to our own lives, where, you know, the humanity invents things in a fit of myopia, uh, not guided by ethics, not guided by the, the gravitas and healthy inertia of tradition. 
and these things are unleashed on, on society, never to be put back in. I mean, poison gas during the First World War, atomic bombs, various forms now of artificial life being produced. Are these things let out of the box and can never be put back in again, that we, that we have to live with those monsters forever because of the madness of one generation of, of scientists? Today we enter into many discussions about technology, the concerns over biotechnology and every aspect of that. And yet the clinical discussions or the debates that will occur by reading Frankenstein, it takes you to a different level, doesn't it? It does. It actually reintroduces by the back door, if you like, morality to the discussion. And it's mm -hmm. as if the modern world and modern science, modern scientism specifically, wants to excommunicate all talk of morality from scientific discussion. And just as you could turn a deaf ear to the Holy Father, sometimes a work of literature, a work of art, can speak much more successfully because it, our guards are down. As Lewis said, we can get past those watchful dragons. For instance, you know, that all of a sudden the morality of biotechnology can be brought home as something which is applicable to Frankenstein. Or if we have big government growing, then a, a novel like 1984 can be much more powerful as a witness against the, the dangers of big government than any number of talks by libertarians. So it's, this is the power of art. And I think that the reason that Frankenstein still speaks so powerfully now, almost 200 years after it was written, is it does address these fundamental issues of where science and technology and progress are encroaching upon traditional morality and the potential destructiveness of that. Frankenstein by Mary Shelley Chapter 20 I sat one evening in my laboratory. The sun had set and the moon was just rising from the sea. I had not sufficient light for my employment, and I remained idle, in a pause of consideration of whether I should leave my labour for the night, or hasten its conclusion by an unremitting attention to it. As I sat, a train of reflection occurred to me, which led me to consider the effects of what I was now doing. Three years before, I was engaged in the same manner, and had created a fiend whose unparalleled barbarity had desolated my heart, and filled it forever with the bitterest remorse. I was now about to form another being, of whose dispositions I was alike ignorant. She might become ten thousand times more malignant than her mate, and delight for its own sake in murder and wretchedness. He had sworn to quit the neighbourhood of man and hide himself in deserts, but she had not, and she, who in all probability was to become a thinking and reasoning animal, might refuse to comply with a compact made before her creation. They might even hate each other. The creature who already lived loathed his own deformity, and might he not conceive a greater abhorrence for it when it came before his eyes in the female form? She might also turn with disgust from him to the superior beauty of man. She might quit him, and he, being again alone, exasperated by the fresh provocation of being deserted by one of his own species, even if they were to leave Europe and inhabit the deserts of the New World, yet one of the results of those sympathies for which the demon thirsted would be children, and a race of devils would be propagated upon the earth who might make the very existence of the species of man a condition precarious and full of terror. Had I right, for my own benefit, to inflict this curse upon everlasting generations? I had been moved by the sophisms of the being I had created. 
I had been struck senseless by his fiendish threats, but now, for the first time, the wickedness of my promise burst upon me. I shuddered to think that future ages might curse me as their pest, whose selfishness had not hesitated to buy its own peace at the price, perhaps, of the existence of the whole human race. I trembled, and my heart failed within me when, on looking up, I saw by the light of the moon the demon at the casement. A ghastly grin wrinkled his lips as he gazed on me, where I sat fulfilling the task which he had allotted to me. Yes, he had followed me in my travels. He had loitered in forests, hid himself in caves, or taken refuge in wide and desert heaths. And now he came to mark my progress and claim the fulfilment of my promise. As I looked on him, his countenance expressed the utmost extent of malice and treachery. I thought with a sensation of madness on my promise of creating another like to him, and, trembling with passion, tore to pieces the thing on which I was engaged. The wretch saw me destroy the creature on whose future existence he depended for happiness, and with a howl of devilish despair and revenge, withdrew. I left the room, and, locking the door, made a solemn vow in my own heart never to resume my labours, and then, with trembling steps, I sought my own apartment. I was alone. None were near me to dissipate the gloom and relieve me from the sickening oppression of the most terrible reveries. Several hours passed, and I remained near my window gazing on the sea. It was almost motionless, for the winds were hushed, and all nature reposed under the eye of the quiet moon. A few fishing vessels alone specked the water, and now and then the gentle breeze wafted the sound of voices as the fishermen called to one another. I felt the silence, although I was hardly conscious of its extreme profundity, until my ear was suddenly arrested by the paddling of oars near the shore, and a person landed close to my house. In a few minutes after, I heard the creaking of my door, as if someone endeavoured to open it softly. I trembled from head to foot. I felt a presentiment of who it was, and wished to rouse one of the peasants who dwelt in a cottage not far from mine, but I was overcome by the sensation of helplessness, so often felt in frightful dreams, when you in vain endeavoured to fly from an impending danger, and was rooted to the spot. Presently... I heard the sound of footsteps along the passage, the door opened, and the wretch, whom I dreaded, appeared. Shutting the door, he approached me and said in a smothered voice, You have destroyed the work which you began. Was it that you intend? Do you dare to break your promise? I have endured toil and misery. I left Switzerland with you. I crept along the shores of the Rhine, among its willow islands, and over the summits of its hills. I have dwelt many months in the heaths of England, and among the deserts of Scotland. I have endured incalculable fatigue and cold and hunger. Do you dare destroy my hopes? A horror story, again, written to, what, entertain over a course of a weekend, you know, around the fireplace and to tell a tale. But 
so much more to dismiss it because it's a part of a quote unquote genre, that would be a huge disservice. Absolutely, not least because, as is often the case, of course, language does not do justice to the reality. So to try to label Frankenstein as horror or belonging to a particular genre is not doing it justice because it transcends those. With all the great works of the Western canon, they're not stereotypical. They're not something which has been produced to a formula. You know, later generations of horror stories might be built towards a a mould, but these, these are pioneering works. There is no mould. Mm-hmm. So Mary Shelley wasn't thinking I'm going to write a horror story because the horror genre wasn't really around and Gothic was in its infancy. And so there was no mold to write to. And so we now try to look back and say, well, that belongs to that stereotype, that pigeonhole. And these great works of literature never fit comfortably into those pigeonholes. And it really can't be duplicated because, again, there are, are many genres out there, again, in that horror genre or even the sci-fi type of genre that would take what Frankenstein did, but but make it ugly and it, and be absurdly grotesque. And I don't mean the grotesque in the literary fashion. Just, well, that's that's yeah. why you know we've talked about how many modern writers and, and and many modern critics take things which are inherently good and twist them in a perverse way. Now, Mary Shelley's genuinely looking for answers, and all genuine search for truth is good because all genuine search for truth is the path of reason, or at least leads to the path of reason, and reason ultimately leads to faith. Someone who's genuinely and honestly pursuing the truth is on the right path. But what we find so often these days is people are deliberately not looking for the truth, they're deliberately trying to subvert the truth because of a radical moral or immoral agenda. So these people will not be doing what Mary Shelley's doing, they will be taking something which is uh, inherently good in a plot device and deliberately twisting it in a way that points it in the wrong direction. Whatever happened to that teenage girl? I think the sad thing about Mary Shelley's life, if I were to compare it, for instance, with someone like Oscar Wilde's life, is that Mary Shelley was an innocent, in a sense that every teenage girl is innocent, even if they don't mm-hmm. think they are. She wasn't served well by her parents, nor by their philosophy. She's then uh, influenced by this philosophy and this neglect, swept off her feet by the poet, taken off to live in his world, is confused, confounded by the experience. In the midst of it, she writes this work of genius. But whereas someone like Oscar Wilde makes his mistakes and emerges from the maelstrom, ultimately a wiser man is received into the Catholic Church on his deathbed, Mary Shelley seems to sort of almost amble through life, going nowhere very much, not really having much to say, sort of being vaguely loyal to Shelley's memory, but showing no real enthusiasm and so a life sort of the end of t.s Eliot's poem the hollow men you know this is mm-hmm. the way the world ends this is the way the world ends this is the way the world ends not with a bang but a whimper and i suppose you could, this is the way the girl ends this is the way the girl ends not with a bang but a whimper her life sort of peters out and i, I think that's very sad we have one firework display by a teenage girl pyrotechnics astonishing that continues to dazzle us but thereafter, she sort of fades from view. An important work to be read by all, particularly those in that moral formation, whether it is in those teenage years, or maybe it's someone who is beginning to develop careers, or all of us who have an opinion. Because what she was experiencing then in that brain of hers as she was going through all of this, 
we are living it out today, aren't we? Yeah, I would say with Frankenstein that the danger with of, of Frankenstein is the girl herself, the author herself, doesn't really have too many of the answers. She has desires. Whereas certainly in the works of uh, many other works of Western literature and works of Shakespeare, for instance, or Dante or Emily Bronte, mm-hmm. you know, the author does know the answers and is, is however subtly she or he is presenting them. What Mary Shelley is doing is asking the questions in a very passionate way because she's in the midst of a, a stormy episode of her life. And the questions are worth asking. And they're worth us asking, not just worth her asking, but she doesn't offer too many answers. Now, that can be attractive as a, as a work of literature, but I think for someone, a reader today, who's confused as Mary Shelley, uh, I'm not sure how many coherent answers they're going to get from it. Now, if it causes them to ask some of the right questions, that's fine. But as an end in itself, going to be, in, in some circumstances, it could be as dangerous as it could be healthy. But that's just looking at how would an adolescent girl or an adolescent boy read Frankenstein. The point is the work transcends that, and we as adults look back on it as grown-ups and see the questions asked and see that the questions were pertinent and here are the answers, and the answers are implicit, we can see, in the unfolding of the story. Mm-hmm. And certainly, ultimately, Mary Shelley is interested. If Victor Frankenstein had followed the advice of his fiance, he would have been married and had happy children. The monster would not have been created would not have his consequences, a life of exile. Elizabeth would still be alive. It's quite clear that the voice that comes through most clearly is the female voice in the novel, virtually the only one. As perhaps Mary Shelley's voice is a profoundly conservative voice, but unfortunately it's a voice crying in a wilderness, very much a male wilderness, where she's been used and abused by the men in her life, by her father, by her lover. And she's lost in the midst of all this and asking those questions. It's a tragedy. It is. It's what it looks like. And what I mean by that, even living out in today's world, I go back to that technical aspect when we talk about the technical things, whether it's in science or even in ethics, when it loses the heart of what that maternal nurture brings into it, that feminine brings into it, this is what it can look like. And that's what Frankenstein is. Right. And and there's a real irony here, of course, and I think it's a healthy one, is that the work is profoundly a lone female voice, a vulnerable female voice in the midst of a a passionate masculine world where Victor Frankenstein and the monsters are macho and Elizabeth in the midst of it, who's the voice of sanity. And it seems to me that this feminine voice is actually a profoundly conservative one. And I think the feminine voice generally is, which is why the feminists didn't get what they bargained for when women got the vote. Mm-hmm. Because they assumed that women would, would vote in a radical fashion because they thought everything men were was negative. In fact, women are very conservative, naturally speaking. And I think we see that conservative voice in Mary Shelley there. And that's the, almost as if the, the one little feminine voice in the midst of this masculine storm is actually the voice of sanity in the midst of the madness. So it is a feminine voice, feminist work, but not a feminist work in the way that feminists understand it. And maybe not in the way her mother would have understood it. Very unlikely, yeah. Hmm, interesting. That's something to ponder right there. Absolutely. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will 
First, pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.